This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm here with Ted Shilowitz and Roni Abovitz. It's November 3rd, 2023, and it's This Week in XR. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Moving into November morning. already. Yes. Tomorrow the time changes. Yeah. Life life moves on. We have we have a great guest today, Amy Lemaire, our friend, uh, who is the managing partner of the Women's XR Fund. So they make direction uh, investments in uh, VR and AR companies that have um, women on the management team, uh, primarily in uh, uh, leadership roles. Inga Petroyavskaya of Shapes XR was on a few weeks ago, uh, and she is one of their portfolio companies. So I think we should get actually a pretty interesting picture of uh, the sector uh, based on her diverse portfolio. And um, I, I want to talk to her about we can, how we can get more women into tech, because I think that's really critical. We don't talk about it enough. We're, we're guilty on this show of not trying hard enough to make sure we have more women on the show, which we're changing. But um uh, it'll be great to talk to Amy about it. Not a huge news week, so, uh, but we always find something to talk about. Uh, the Biden administration um, put out an executive order, which is sort of a temporary law, if you will, because uh, the next guy can scratch it off the books if he wants or she wants. Um, but uh, it's 100 pages long and tries to address a lot of the issues around AI that uh, the White House has been talking about. I, I have to say, I didn't think they would do anything. And in that sense, this is a big deal. Yeah, interesting. Just be, before we go into that, Charlie, yesterday at the Infinity Fest in downtown LA, one of the panels on virtual production was all women. And it was really, really great. The woman moderator, four women guests, all working actively in various parts of virtual production one from Intel, uh, independent uh, cinematographer and some other uh, technicians and people running the stages. So that was a big, a big, nice step forward because you and I are often on panels going, we need more women, we need more diversity on these things. So they showed up nicely yesterday. Um, on the Biden uh, front, you know, I think the three of us are very conflicted about this, right? Because we talk about Fox and the hen house disease uh, all the time. So a lot of this was kind of motivated by the big tech giants that have already put their bet on this and now are trying to limit potentially others from getting into the field. I think that's a that's a concern that I'm not quite sure how to grapple with. Look, well, I mean, it's a step, right? But we have things like the FDA, the FAA that regulate, you know, complex systems that could cause real issues if they're not regulated. AI is the same thing. I don't think there's anything exceptional about it, just another piece of tech. Exceptional in that it should not be regulated. Um, but it needs to be regulated very intelligently. I think that's what the tech world's concerned about, that it's regulated by people that don't understand safety or tech well. Hopefully, this leads to something like an FAA that's that's thoughtful and rational and 
full of very smart people who are not the fox in the hen house. That that's the thing Ted and, and Charlie we talk about all the time. Um, you know, you need folks who are not bought and sold by major companies to who who are as good, right? The tricky thing is if you're really good at AI, you're probably working for one of those companies, right? Yeah, if you're that good, what are you doing, right? right? Like, why are you not there? So that good and idealistic, it's very rare right now, but that's what the world needs. The EU may come out with more restrictive, uh, more restrictive laws. The concern, of course, is that there will be in other countries, perhaps other parts of the world, no such restrictions. And that would have a impact on the ability of American companies to compete. Also, we're not even talking about open source uh, models, which really are not owned by anybody and can be run locally. So I don't know how you um, you put the genie back in the bottle there either. Can, I, can I challenge that for one second? Sure, please do. No, challenging the the idea of, of, of innovators and big companies that think if there's regulation, we can't be good. Um, the United States happens to develop some of the best med tech in the world, right? That that's known worldwide. And there's countries that have no regs and their med tech is, is awful and hurts people and kills people. And we make amazingly innovative med tech that's safe to use and helps people. Uh, and, 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 and those regulated countries where, you know, you're getting a blue chip piece of medical device that really works well. You're not only innovative, you're helping people and you're profitable. So I, I cannot buy the argument that somehow AI innovation is going to be hampered if you're protective of people's safety and focusing on helping the world and people, because in many other instances, like badly designed airplanes fall out of the sky and, and blow things up. And if you don't have the FEA, it'd be, it'd be a God awful mess. So I, I don't just don't buy that argument, but that's a whole nother show we should do. So <clears throat> more on AI Anthropic, you guys know Anthropic yeah, it's open AI's big competitor, but has a more of a business focus. Uh, and charges more. Uh, they just raised another $2 billion from Google. Uh, and this is, you know, on the heels of a $4 billion investment from Amazon. Uh, is Cla Claude must be really be that good. It really is that good. And they are kind of crushing it right now. When, when you talk to people that are deep in this using multiple tools, uh, they find that that language model and that approach. And remember, a lot of these are ex open AI guys, right? That that uh, defect, defected and, and went to build a different model with a different goal set. Uh, and I think to, to Roni's point, that's the value of open competition is uh, there are no restrictions right now on companies starting again and, and trying again. And the minute you put some restrictions on that, potentially um, only the ones that have held their, their business acumen are the ones that are gonna emerge into the world, right? So. Can I throw out a confusion question? Like Google and Google Compute and the gigantic AI teams they have investing in a company that a, a real competitor in the exact same area, Amazon, also invested in it is not making any sense to me. Um, I just don't get it. They all have their own ability to their own anthropic. Um, they're both throwing money in together. I don't understand how this works. Um, I don't well, know Tony if this ends well. Roni, it seems to be classic innovators dilemma, right? Where even you know Google as an innovator uh, and a but but also a large entrenched company, there are forces inside there going. Even with all the smarts we have, we are getting outpaced by a startup. So it makes important sense for us to be hedging our bets and betting on a on a horse. But you're right. The 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 strangeness of it is 
the Amazon plus Google invest to compete against the Microsoft OpenAI camp. Um, you know, who the hell knows? It's fascinating. It, it, it seems bizarre. Uh, are you there, Ted? Tickets to sit in the board meetings to brain drain Anthropic. Like, and I know that's not what Anthropic team is thinking, but spending two to four billion if you're Google or Amazon to just learn things mm. and port that learning over to your own teams, it's probably worth the price. I think there was a Silicon Valley episode that was very similar to that. <laughs> yeah, I think I lived part of that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, I'm I'm interested in seeing Claude work. I have to look for some videos or something because uh you know i i only know what i've, I've read here um so oh here's here's a great story um ar contact lenses are back yeah i saw this this is interesting yeah our friends uh, our friends at mojo vision uh, as uh, reader or listeners may remember our friends at mojo vision in northern california pivoted after spending years on ar contact lenses pivoted pivoted to micro displays because it was so hard and going to take so long Yet here's a company, Expansio. Um, they are uh, successfully testing uh, prototypes that enable things like night vision, zoom, real-time health monitoring. They're like soft contact lenses. And uh, it's a, an, an Asian company. Um, you know, and it uh, looks like they're just diving right in with $40 yeah. million to follow, uh, to follow up on what Mojo was doing. They're not giving up. And, you know, going back to Google for a moment, we we have heard rumors for years of some backdoor stuff that Google is doing, working on smart contact lenses as well. So perhaps a sector that, you know, technology will allow its time to come at some point. Um, so potentially a very smart investment in the space, knowing that, you know, we haven't even figured out how to get uh, sort of eyewear to the point of, of viability, much less a contact lens, but long-term bet. Um, you know, nothing wrong with taking that long-term bet, knowing that a lot of people in the world wear contact lenses, and maybe there's a smart contact lens in the future that will be viable. Who knows? It's interesting that the first applications, just like the ones that were uh, that they were talking about at Mojo Vision, have to do with uh, helping, uh, you know, helping people yeah, with vision impairment. Yeah, but things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Dash Tune raises $5 million for AR-created comic books and graphic novels. Well, uh, this is, um, this isn't surprising to me. There, there have been all sorts, there was a comic book company, Roni, I remembered that it made partnered fire. up. Yeah. Made fire. My friend, my friend, Ben. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's I, actually frustrating because I'm sure if Ben may be listening, he's probably crying <laughs> because they, they built out one of the best versions of this you could imagine and they hit the pandemic yeah and and it fell apart not because the product wasn't great uh it was just it was amazing anyone got to try made fire and then like it sort of revives the same darn idea all over again well this one appears to be getting some uh traction it's a korean company and uh so i mean this is in my opinion an obvious chip shot for generative ai to make graphic novels and comic books because they're they're built a, around single images collaged together. You just said the most important thing, Korean. That was the the issue. The United States is so dragging behind Korea, Japan, China in adoption of XR and the metaverse. 
in Korea, the idea of like reading manga on a mobile device, it's like, it's, it's, it's mass adoption already. Uh, so that movement to manga and AR and metaverse is very natural. So it, it could be we as a country just lagging behind, but if you go deep into what's happening across Asia, I think they're five or 10 years ahead of us in sort of the adoption or the willingness to adopt. Well, I don't know, Ted pretty, and Charlie, if you guys have seen that, but that's been my my even very recent experience. Well, and this this apparently is my theme today. Let's bring big tech back into this conversation because as you were <laughs> talking about our friend Ben and Madefire, I just did a quick search to see if something called Comixology was still around. It is indeed still around. It is owned by Amazon. It is an Amazon product uh, with a subscription that you can um, start and try. And it is online comic books of all form and style. Um, so whether or not anybody is really engaging in it, Amazon has enough funding to just keep that alive, right? Um, and no doubt someone on that team will get involved in using AI to do self-creation of comic books and fan-based comic books and mashup stuff using various forms of visual AI. Um, so, you know, Amazon's in that game, still in that game. There are going to be a zillion graphic novels and comics and, and actually just straight up books generated by ai there'll be a billion of them on amazon by the time the year is over do you guys either have and as we're as we're talking about this and i think maybe we have another minute or two do you guys have opinions on the intellectual property dynamic of you know inspiration versus some form of stealing or acquisition because everyone every creative artist is inspired by something right and inspired by a global sort of understanding of the things they've been influenced by and the things they've read. Well, your musicianship is a result of all the music you've listened to in your life. Correct. So now with various forms of either verbal AI, spoken AI, or visual AI, or all these different companies touching these, these forms, where do we, as three people on a podcast, start to th synthesize and draw the line of that's inspiration no, that is not insp just inspiration. That is inspiration directed at pulling someone's work and reformulating it. Obviously, remashing up comic books. Well, you know. interesting question. Kind of a biggie. Amy a just came in. Amy Why just, don't we throw Amy into it? Let's, exactly. a Let's bring in Amy LeMayer, managing partner of the Women's XR Fund. There you go. Here she comes. Right on time, by the way. To the minute. Amy, welcome. Thanks. Hi, Amy. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Hi. Have Hello. you met Rhodey before? Not in person. Nice Not to meet you. Not in person. Well, kind of virtually now, but yeah, it's great. <laughs> to meet you. It's true. So we were just, so as always, we'll just skip the small talk and jump right in. Uh, we were just talking about uh, an issue. Ted, do you want to reframe that for Amy? Sure, of course. What, what this podcast has by necessity become in part is not just about XR, right? The extended reality of all these different worlds and things we talk about all the time, but it's added an AI component just by its natural fact that that is eating the world right now in various ways. So one of the things uh, we were talking about is, is kind of one of the biggest question for anybody that touches the creative business or potentially looking to invest in these businesses or what they do, which would be you, is where how and when and is it even possible to draw the line between creative inspiration right the idea that every human is inspired by things that they see around them and feel around them and that becomes their human experience and then they will create off that versus 
some version of taking other people's IP, throwing it into a language model and allowing it to resynthesize and using that IP to then come up with some sort of new version of what was already out there. Where, you know, and it's a big, messy, potentially very ugly question, which of course, you know, we, we hear a lot of the big stories of major artists suing and certain creators taking a stance and many others just going, I don't even know how to deal with it. So I'm just going to let it happen. So that's a, that's an interesting starting point for our conversation, Amy. Great. I'm so ready for it. <laughs> okay. Fire away. Help us out. So what comes to mind, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen it, but if you haven't, I recommend it. It's Mark Ronson's TED talk on remixing, remixing music. It's an excellent it's an excellent TED talk. It's probably, I don't know, eight years old at this point. But, you know, that's that was taking different things that already existed and remixing it in a way that added its own creativity and then created something new. And he goes into a fair amount of detail on why that is therefore an art form in and of itself. And that's what I'm reminded of when I hear about, you know, how AI could potentially help inspire um, creativity versus just be some, a co copy paste. There are varying levels of creativity uh, in every endeavor. And certainly AI has an automatic mode where it would be silly for you to claim that you had made the result of your prompt. For example, I often type in a bunch of random letters and numbers when I'm testing a new platform just to see how it will respond to that. And oftentimes I get, you can do this at home when mid-journey, just do ampersand question mark XIJ into mid-journey and it gives you an amazing image. Okay, clearly that image has nothing to do with me. Uh -huh. Now, if I had typed in a paragraph about that included, you know, all sorts of details, uh, about a, a person and a scene and the lighting and you know the nature of the what style of art is it in and then it starts to become something that no I didn't draw it I imagined that I created that prompt now of course images have become commoditized so so what I got mid-journey to generate uh, an exciting image Right. But if you want that image to have meaning, you have to imbue that image with meaning. The image no longer is the thing in itself. It sort of becomes about how it exists and how are you consuming it and what is the context that it's in. So I think we're almost going to a place where we have to look at context before we can look at copyright. Mm. So, well, my Charlie, let me challenge that. Let's say you hire Amy and Amy's a really good disney type artist and it's a work for hire you 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 just said amy make me a cool drawing and you paid her a hundred bucks uh repay her a thousand dollars for that and then she gives you the drawing by current law if you had a contract and it was a work for hire and she assigned her copyrights to you you have nothing to do with it other than paying her and asking her to make me a drawing and now you own that copyright because she transferred it to you so the real question is does AI create a copyright? Because you could say that you're paying Midjourney to make something for you. So does it have does it have inherent rights yeah. as a machine to create something without Yikes. you? Yeah, because you could own Amy's copyright by buying it from her. We we've talked about this before. It, this is something that like the Supreme Court has to decide, because I think, but I do think that their context really matters. 
as to whether or not it's just a, a thing created by a computer or really couldn't have existed without the human in the process. Yeah, decide and and over decide and redecide over and over and over again to the point where we get that classic moment of I know it when I see it. Well, what? How? how what are you talking about here? Right? How does it actually? Well, so this is this is maybe one of the biggest existential questions of technology. Uh, you know that that will live in in our lifetime is is how to manage the creative process when the creative inspiration tool has become so powerful in so many ways that it can grasp into someone's IP or a collective IP, right? If it's 10 people that have made something or a style of something or a band, or I don't think it's a solvable problem, but I think it's something we're going to no, talk it about. No, it is an existential question. That's exactly right. Um, so, Amy, um, how is your portfolio? How are your portfolio? First of all, um, can we talk about what is in your portfolio? Sure. Yeah. So, just a reminder: we invested in. Uh, we have a portfolio of fourteen uh, AR, VR, AI companies across a lot of different verticals. Um, all at the seed stage is, is were our initial investments. Um, you know, some of them are prisms of reality, so they do how to learn math and VR. Um, and they're doing really great. They're in over 200 districts, 36 states. They've taught hundreds of thousands of students math and VR. Um, then there's also Obsess. I think we've talked about before, um, based out of New York City, they do virtual stores for, I think it's over 170 brands at this point. So excited to see what they're going to do in Q4. Um, embodied Labs, so they teach uh, how to um, care for the elderly. So as our senior population grows, um, they're particularly working tightly with the state of California right now on um, caregiving for the seniors. I'm, I'm convinced that that space is a, is a growing space. I think that's a very smart early stage investment with effectively unlimited growth potential. So we've got some- yeah. I think that one's really interesting. Um, and the other one I just want to give a shout out to is Shapes XR. Um, you know, Charlie, you were an early user of Shapes and they're yeah. on Quest 3 now. Um, Inga and her team are just going gangbusters on helping people create, speaking of creation, content creation, helping people create using um, spatial computing. Um, and all those women, all those companies have women co-founders or yeah. um, senior level executives. Right, right. All of them have um, at least one woman, woman in the as a founding part of the founding team. Do you want to is, talk a little bit? Um, go ahead, Charlie. Uh, no, I was going to say, is it hard to find teams that that meet that threshold? Uh, I think it got harder over time. So we did our first investments. Uh, actually, November of 2019, um, and then we did our final um, initial investment a year ago with follow-on over the course of this this year. Um, I think it definitely got harder to find uh, female-founded teams where we felt that they were strong enough that they could sustain the current market situation. Um, and but you know, but the whole premise of XR and AI, right? And and having AI from the very beginning was certainly useful. We have companies that are not spatial computing related at all. They're just AI. Um, Empathic is a good example of that. So they're using um, text and, and ultimately it'll be voice on how do you uh, enable someone to say things in a more empathic way, um, both not only people, but bots, right? So, or AI. So, 
uh, you know, for example. So so that that broadened the network and made it easier. I think if it was just XR and female founders, it would have been extremely hard. What I was going to ask is maybe give our listeners a little background on you and your your other partners in the group, like a little history of your entity, how it started, why it started, how it's grown, like a little a little history lesson for us on this. Because sure, it started as a movement really in January of 2018, uh, how to get more women engaged in the XR space. Um, and that was Malia Probst and Abigail Albright and Martina Walkoff. They started an accelerator uh, program for startups. And I was chosen to be one of the mentors in the very first cohort. And so that's how I got involved. And they did another cohort that year in 2018. And by the end of the year had gathered enough data to uh, determine that there was uh, ability, ability to have a fund that was enough of a pipeline. Um, so Martina approached me and she and I started the fund uh, early 2019, um, like I said, first deployments uh, of capital later 2019. Uh, the pandemic certainly was an interesting part of, of that uh, journey, uh, but um, really excited with the portfolio that we have and, and, and glad to be supporting the founders. Um, yeah, everybody's still at it, still uh, uh, growing. And everyone's cautious about the current market conditions and, and making sure that they're being careful with their runway, um, but ultimately optimistic of uh, spatial computing and AI as growth. Amy, how are you finding their ability to move? Oh, sorry, Charlie, but really quick, the ability to move beyond the initial funding. Right, like you have a you have a yeah. very focused fund uh, with a mission and a purpose to help these founders. It's true, but then they get thrown out to the wide world, and like, I, I'm friends with some of those folks, and it's just like, yeah, incredibly, it's, it's really hard, but it's like I think ten times harder for them. I agree with that. Um, even the the strongest companies in our portfolio has been hard for them to raise uh, right now. Um, I, and again, I think it's two things. I think it's both market. I think it's three. I think it's market conditions. I think it's gender. And I also think it's uh, just that we're in this emerging technology that a lot of investors don't quite believe in yet. You said current market situation three times. Yeah. So let's drill down on that. What is the current market situation? Yeah, you know, we're seeing a lot of the tech companies uh, shorten, you know, bringing their budgets under a, a little bit of control, laying off folks, maybe not having as much marketing budget as they would have before. Um, you're seeing people not spend as much money. Um, you know, interest rates are still high. Um, and uh, you're seeing investors not invest as much, right? Uh, Q3, I think, was the lowest venture investment quarter since, I think, six or eight years ago. So that. Um, why? And you also mentioned you thought that um, some of the companies uh, were having trouble raising money for the very reason that you liked them, which was yeah. that they're led by women. Um, is is that is that real? Does that happen still? That you it's, think there's some underlying bias against women? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and part of it is relationship building, right? Particularly when you're talking about uh, people being less risk averse or more risk averse. Um, 
they'll go back to folks that they know, relationships that they know. And women are still growing in this space, uh, even as just tech leaders in general, not only our spaces is in XR. In fact, I think XR is more supportive than most tech spaces um, in terms of, of women and having male allies and, and getting support in this space. I'll, tell, I'll give you my experience in it. Um, I've yeah. a lot of founders come out to me, uh, all, all types, shapes, sizes, genders, colors, et cetera. Um, the, the non-female, non-black and brown founders that I've referred to same investors that I, that I know I, there's about an 80% hit rate that they're getting funded. And I, and I don't refer a lot because I'm, I'm I'll, I'll go, this is a really good company. That same filtering process, if it's a female-led company or a black or brown founder, I'm batting zero. Not because the women in charge of that company or the black or brown founder are not as capable as the other ones. In fact, they're more capable in almost all those cases. It's just a 0% hit rate. So I completely see the, the you know, when you talk about market conditions, gender, the, the field, I think gender is adding a 10 or 100x on the difficulty level because i'm still seeing people get funded in ai they're getting exorbitant funding um and i'm seeing lots of folks get funding left and right in all sorts of areas um but i think that when you look at that equation um if you're black or brown or female or, or you're both you are adding like a weighting factor which is not their fault right it's the fault of the venture community in fact i've I've talked to friends and I'm like, this is like baseball before Jackie Robinson. Uh, it really feels that. And like, it, it's insanely weird that tech, which is supposed to be so forward thinking. Most of the people tell me it's like, this is like the major leagues before, for, you know, Jackie Robinson really, or like maybe right around like that early fifties where he's there, but it's completely behind sports, behind the military, behind so many other areas. You would not think tech is that backwards in terms of the leadership and the ability to get funded as a, as a founder. It's just like, I don't know if that's been your, that's been my experience. Yeah. And if you look at that, that group of people as well, venture in general, there are more women in venture now than there used to be, but still very heavily male dominated and heavily white male dominated. Um, so it'd be, you know, interesting to see it, as we were raising, in fact, we made a goal for our fund to try and get more women as LPs. And so we were able to do that. It's 51% women. But if you look at the amount of money that was given to the fund um, for us to invest, it's it's vastly more funded by, by men. So you're still looking at the most money being controlled by white males. And, um, you know, and, and then so... And they're going into their networks and their comfort zone to do the investing. Um, and, and Amy, the scale of capital that you're getting is also, um, it's there's something broken in that system, right? Because I, I know some folks who are like 32, they were some kind of product manager at an e-commerce company or something, and they've raised like half a billion dollars to go do tech investing as a single LP, as, as a sort of a single partner fund. Right. And, and their claim to fame is they're 32. They worked at some company. Um, <laughs> I, I have another friend that has a $2 billion fund in the Valley. He's mid thirties smart, but like, why does he access $2 billion? Yeah. Um, and why is it almost 
a Herculean effort to raise 50 million or 10 million or 100 million if you're, and I'm going to say, I think female and black and brown are all facing a very similar set of challenges. Well, Um, and and Roni and Amy, there's an interesting, as you guys were talking, I was just checking to confirm because I'd heard a couple of things on some of the podcasts I listened to that was sort of slightly eye-opening to me, but not surprising. There's an interesting dichotomy on what you're talking about versus the very large tech companies and the amount of foreign immigrants that they hire to mm. work in those companies is extraordinarily high. It's like 70 plus percent. It's sort of a, an amazing statistic uh, of people that come from other countries. So therefore potentially not looking like Roni or Charlie and me or you, except not male, female. Um, so, you know, in, in the diversity category on those large companies, they find a talent pool that's really interesting, but somehow that hasn't crossed over into the startup dynamic. Uh, and, you know, like a perfect sort of very visual example of look who runs Google right now. Look who runs Microsoft right now. They are not white Americans, right? Uh, and and many other companies, very large technology or mid, mid-sized technology companies have kind of bridged that gap. So what do we think doesn't happen when there's so much success around large tech giants finding talent from all over the world and needing that talent? Um, what Where is that translation issue? It doesn't quite funnel all the way down to the startup phase. It's interesting to me. Yeah, and in part, if we're talking about actions to take, which I I like to do when we're we're doing this sort of thing, um, what what I would hope is uh, a couple different things. One, showing the visibility of, you know, like just being able to see to to your point, who's leading these companies and that their skin is a different color. Like hopefully that is an inspiration to younger generations as they're looking at what they might want to do or what their career paths are. Um, and, and same with women, right? Just trying to, to magnify and, and you guys have all been great at this at different uh, conferences and panel panels. Um, you know, the voices of, of diversity in this space Um to be an inspiration for those people that, and to encourage those people that maybe are considering um, going into our fields. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I, I'm glad that at least, particularly in the XR space, I've, I've seen just such support across the board on, um, you know, trying to to make it be a more diverse set of folks that are building this next wave of computing. Amy, can I see a question about your view of XR, mm-hmm. like with Quest 3, Apple Vision Pro, Magic Leap 2, things yeah. like that. Um, where, where, When do you think it becomes, you know, mainstream like a mobile phone? Um, and when do you think it becomes something that you don't have to be edgy or on the innovative curve to, like, go build things for that? Like, right now, anyone in XR is still, like, very frontier, pioneery. Yeah. Kind of like, what's, what's your take on that timing? So... With the caveat that I'm a true believer and have been in this space for seven years. Um, And also my background is at a company called Akamai Technologies. We helped to scale the internet. So I remember what that journey was, right? Building streaming in 1999 and 2000 when no one was streaming. Um, I think it'll be 2030 before we're getting the non- you know, I think all of us will be using headsets faster than that. Um, but before it becomes commonplace, before we we start to think about we could replace this, 
Um, I still think kids today might ask us why we did things on flat screens. I, I do believe we're moving to a spatial way of interacting with, with the digital and the physical. Um, and I look forward to it, right? Um, but I do think it's it, the hardware is hard. Uh, you know that better than all of us. And uh, it's taking us a lot longer for to get that hardware to a point where it's comfortable, it's affordable, it's usable, and there's content. That's awesome. I'm very much on that same timeline, by the way. So I hope we're both right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of moving the goalposts a little, I think. Amy, when we started talking in 2018, I think we were thinking 2024, yeah. things would be pretty hot by now. Yeah. Yeah, I think, Amy, you know I've always been a 2030-er, right? I, I I see things from a standpoint of looking at the lens of how much it takes to actually find uh, a certain threshold point and understanding how many pieces of what we call truly hit, you know, mass market, mass adoption content it takes to move a a, 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 a piece of hardware into the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, and even with all the funding that's going into it, we have what we'd call minor hits, you know, across a small number of enthusiastic users, but we don't have anything that at, that someone has said, I have to go there now. Like, it's important for me to go there now. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very possible that Apple, with what they're driving towards in the next, and you're right on that 2030 sort of time frame, in the next three to five years, uh, will hit their first milestone and then their second milestone in the sort of six to seven to eight years from now kind of dynamic. Um, which is hard for a lot of people to think about, but it's my job to think about it every day. So. Well, well, yeah. What do you think about the now, Amy? Do you think Quest 3 will get you into the 10, 20 million kind of users, which is which is not bad, like the evolution of PCs? Like, is that good enough for right now? It has to be, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we have, right? And and again, I'm still, still a full believer that we'll get to where, you know, we all think, this will go this movement from from flat to to spatial and, and you're seeing it both from all of these technology companies building the hardware and and the the processors and the cameras like all of the and the um, development engines right all of the pieces of the ecosystem are coming together to enable us to do this and that's what needed to happen with the internet too you couldn't just say internet now everybody run their you know put their website up um so you know, I, I see all of those pieces continuing to grow um, and develop. So, uh, you know, an AI, you know, we started the conversation there, that that will help us create tenfold, right? And and natural language processing, the ability to speak um, and interact from it with us in a spoken way with the with the headsets versus having to type, that'll help. Yeah, all of the all of the things are still moving in the right direction. It's just taking longer than. Uh, Charlie, I had hoped in the beginning, and I should have known better. <laughs> yeah, me too. But we always say it's going to be different this time. That's what people are saying about AI. It's going to be different this time. It never is. I mean, but maybe it could be because there's always exceptions. So, so we'll see. But um, you know, I think that uh, AI, like everything else, may uh, suddenly having had this phenomenal. Uh, introduction and uh, disruptive potential turns out to be yes disruptive but you know it takes 10 years it takes 20 years before that fully manifests and we know what that very vague 
phrase disruption means. Well, and, and to that end, Amy, as we sort of enter the mid 2020s, are there areas that you're particularly interested in companies that you are rooting around now that you think will be really smart investments for your startup stage and then migrating on? Are there certain areas that you're looking at that you're putting more energy into than others right now? Uh, so I still think that enterprises, you know, as, as most people do think, uh, you know, that's that's they'll pick up before consumers um, other than gaming, which will continue to be strong. It's a it's a fun use case for VR. Um, the kids I talked to today are still doing gaming in VR. They're having a great time and they can't imagine life without it. Um, I'm really hopeful for education as I see the progress that Anna Rupa and her team are making with PRISMs. Um, and I love the concept of enabling content creation. So whatever we can do, those tools to help create more easy, more easily create spatial content, I'm really supportive of that space as well. Um, are you going to raise more money? I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I'm asking this. Are you going to raise more money? We're not doing a second fund. Is it for the reason that you said a few minutes ago, which is at first it was easy to find women-led companies that you know that met your investment thesis, but then it got harder. And that's a part of it. Because you know we have a I have a similar problem when booking the show, right? Now you've been on the show several times over the past three and a half years. Yes, it has been three and a half years, yes. uh, and. Um, you know, when we started, we really said, you know what, we don't want it to be guys talking to guys. We want to make sure that we always have a woman in the room and that, you know, the diverse voices are represented on the podcast. And we were really great about it the first 18 months. You know, we, we should have won an award, but then it got hard. Mm -hmm. And so we went from having sort of a hundred percent female guests to having 30% female guests, I think this closing 2023, we probably out of 50 guests, I'm going to say 50, only 15 of them were women, which is really kind of embarrassing to have to say out loud on the podcast. So um, what what do we do about this? I mean, you know, tech companies always talk a, a big game about diversity and inclusion, but we're, we're, it's not happening. Yeah. You know, so, so how, you know, help, help, how could you and I help ourselves um, to, you know, sort of meet our own values? Yeah. Um, I think the easiest way to do it is to network with women, right? Ask the women that you know that have been on the podcast, who else should we have on the podcast? Right. Because we can tell you because we're developing our own networks um, that may be gender-based, that may be, you know, BIPOC-based. So uh, that that is the easiest way to do it, I think. Oh, yeah, we yeah. should put out a group email to everybody. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Because I was reluctant, you know, because I do talk. I mean, the guests are, most of them are people that yeah. I, I know and I see all the time. So I sort of ask it casually, but that would be a really good way to do it. And and it doesn't make it weird. Like I'm asking you to find me somebody else yeah. when when I should be asking you again. Yeah. So this this way- it, it Every one of the founders a, I mentioned would be interesting to be on the podcast. For they've example. all been on the podcast, Amy. 
All those women have been on a the lot podcast. Of them have. That's nice. Yeah, <laughs> Do it again. For sure. We're, we're, we're talking to the same talented people. This is a very small community. Uh, it may look huge from the outside compared to something like mobile generally. And of course it is. Um, well, but... and over a thousand episodes. Congratulations on that. No, 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 not a thousand. Not a thousand. Episodes. No, I oh, think no. we're the, you're oh, right. I don't, I don't get to look at this for a year. Right. A hundred and right, 200, right. Almost 200. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's. I think we're on episode like. I think we're on episode one twenty-five. Like yeah, yeah, I could. It's a lot. Yeah. I, well, well. A, Amy, you're episode one sixty-eight. Hey, one sixty. Yeah, there you go. Great. <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe Charlie, Amy, Roni, you know, for all of us, uh, for anybody that's listening this week to the to the podcast kind of an open call for um if you have others that you think we've missed in the uh you know in in the the scrum of us trying to find interesting people to to bring on and and have interesting voices um you know now's your chance let us know right um there's a, there's a way to do that uh we did for a little while charlie do uh user questions and it's kind of fallen off the radar i i know and i have one back. from another guy that i had queued up for two weeks and we forget about it by the end of the show uh, but I've been getting a lot more mail and pings on LinkedIn and places about the show. So, you know, we dipped into the iTunes uh, top 100 for about a hot minute, uh, and then and then and then we dipped out. So I don't know how they measure these things, or but but we're doing pretty good. Uh, so that's the benefit of doing 165 episodes. People kind of get used to us being around. Yeah. So well, Amy, a pleasure. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Ronnie. I was going to say, Amy, tell me if this resonates with you, because I I was spending uh, an inordinate amount of time on this issue at Magic Leap, uh, mm -hmm. trying to unravel this mess. That's tech, which is a pipeline that starts in elementary school and, and is this whole system discouraging women from going into STEM and things like that. But I was a biomedical engineer in grad school, and more than half my class were, were women because uh, it was a, a mix of med school and engineering. And there's clearly a, a much bigger number of women in who become doctors, radiologists, all sorts of things. So it was a different experience. I went through engineering where like 10% of my class was female to biomed and was like more than half. So we, we were sort of the, uh, if you were a male, you were the minority in that class, which was, which was really interesting. Um, and I'm wondering what happened in medicine that accommodated it. And one of the interesting things that I learned along the way was that at some point you get to enough of a percentage, like 30, 40% is this threshold that people have told me that then women feel comfortable coming in. But if you're at five, 10, 15%, you just always feel weird and isolated. And you're always that rare person in the room. Um, and it's hard, but in biomed, it was like, oh, half the class are women. So clearly more women were applying and felt comfortable. How does tech make that jump? Right. And and we were like, how do we as a tech company solve that supply chain problem that begins in when you're a kid? And by the time you graduate high school and go to college, your mechanical and electrical engineering courses, it's still like 90 percent guys so that it's discouraging for women. How do you think that breaks? Because in, in medicine, something something happened and it's, you know, I don't know if it's completely on par, but in my class, it was like more than half. Uh, and it was all it was engineering and medicine together. So I'm wondering, what, what's, what's your take on that? Roni, I think that's really interesting that there's some sort of a tipping point that makes gender less visible or more welcoming. Um, 
I guess just going back to the point that I mentioned before, which is that visibility, how do we put the faces of more people up front so that people that are, you know, going to college or universities or even before then, right? Anna Rupa is out there with her VR headsets teaching math to high schoolers and all the high schoolers that she's seeing are, you know, are seeing women, um, uh, you know, leading companies and doing these things and, and setting examples. Amy, it's been great having you on the show. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. A half hour goes by really quickly when we're talking to friends about issues we're all engaged with and passionate about. It's great to see you again. This is your third appearance on the show. So uh, you're on your way to a green jacket. Um, and, uh, you know, it'll be a smoking jacket with, of course, our pictures on it. <laughs> Amy, Amy. The green jacket is mythical. Uh, not seen the green jacket yet, Charlie. Well, you're so a host. You have to buy your own jacket. Yeah, the green jacket is you become a host. By the way, <laughs> you know, it's Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, right? So we're still missing that fourth. It would almost be worth it to actually have a woman on the show all the time. Problem solved. We should talk <laughs> about it. Be fun. All right, you guys, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening, everybody. And we will see you back here next Friday. Thank you, Amy. Bye.